So we're having some mic problems, but can everyone hear me? Okay, so I'm just going to go then. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word now, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to our hearts. We are pondering, Lord, the greatest mystery and the greatest truth in the universe this morning. And I pray that you would help us to not only understand it, but to delight in it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So three weeks ago, we started a series called The Marks of a Christ-Honoring Church. The Marks of a Christ-Honoring Church. And we looked at the first mark three weeks, three weeks ago, which was a commitment to expositional preaching. That is that as the members of this church, you expect from me to open God's word and to explain and proclaim what is there, to take books of the Bible and unpack it for us, to unfold it for us. And then last week we looked at the second mark, which is a commitment to biblical theology. Biblical theology. If you don't know what that means, it simply means this. The study of God and his ways in human history. The study of God and his ways in human history. And we specifically looked at last week how God is the creator of all things, but he's also a personal God. He's a God who desires to have relationship with humanity. But not only that, he's holy. He's holy and he's set apart. He is otherworldly, so to speak. And because of that, he stands against sin, that which is evil. But we also saw last week that he is a faithful and loving God. He is full of steadfast love towards his people. And then finally, we saw that he is a sovereign God. He reigns over the universe with absolute supremacy. He is working all things according to the perfect counsel of his will. And that was the second mark of a healthy Christ-honoring church, a commitment that when we gather as the people of God, we are gathering primarily to learn and to worship God. And this morning is the third mark of a Christ-honoring church. And the third mark is simply this, a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might be saying, really? That's kind of an obvious one. But the reality is, it's not so obvious anymore. There are many churches that are abandoning the gospel of Jesus. They're no longer believing the gospel. They're no longer proclaiming the gospel. It it might be better to say that there are many churches abandoning the gospel of Jesus for another gospel. And we shouldn't be surprised by this as Christians. From the very early stages of Christianity, after Jesus rose from the dead and then he sent out his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, you have the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Galatia. And he says in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, that I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the Apostle Paul plants a church in Galatia and these people come to faith in Jesus Christ and now he's no longer with them and he finds out that there's these false teachers who are now teaching this different gospel and Paul's astonished by this that they are turning to a different gospel. So it's, it's, it's not new for us, just as it's not new for the Apostle Paul. And Paul goes on to say this in light of the fact that they have turned to a different gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's literally saying, if if I, as the Apostle Paul, preach to you a different gospel than the one I first preached to you, let me be cursed. In other words, Paul's showing just how important, how sacred, how valuable the gospel of Jesus Christ is. In 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, you don't need to turn there. I should have said this at the beginning. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages this morning. And so I encourage you just to write down the reference and then to look them up at another time. But in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, Paul is writing to young Timothy. And he says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that there are churches today and preachers today and pastors today who are no longer preaching the gospel or at least they are preaching a different gospel. And I would go so far as to say that a church that doesn't believe or preach the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't a church. It might be a group of people who love each other, but it's not a church because a church is primarily, the people of God are primarily called to preach, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week I said the most important question a human being could ever ask is, who is God? And I would propose to you that the other most important question that a human being could ever ask is what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I I have a simple goal, but also a lofty goal. My goal is simply to proclaim and explain for us what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's lofty because the gospel is the most weighty, most majestic, most glorious, most powerful, most mysterious, important truth to have ever been told to humanity. Paul, in Romans 1.16, refers to the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The, the gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, the gospel of Jesus has eternal consequences for you and I. The gospel is a life and death matter. And so I don't come to this endeavor lightly 
this morning. Now, I've been throwing this word around, gospel. And for some of us, we might not actually know what that word means. And so it's important we ask, what does the word gospel mean? Well, the Greek word in the New Testament is evangel. And it simply means good news. Good news. So the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The essence of Christianity is good news. It's good news. Christianity is fundamentally about news. You see, many people think, and I've alluded to this last week, that that Christianity is about right living and morality and and being religious. And, And though Christianity does speak to all those things, that's not fundamental to Christianity. What's fundamental to Christianity is news. There is something that God has done, and it's good. See, Christianity is fundamentally about who God is and what he has done in human history, specifically in the person of Jesus. The gospel is good news about what God has done. So what is this good news of Jesus? Well, first I want to answer that by addressing what's not the good news of Jesus. What's not the good news of Jesus? Just as in the Apostle Paul's day, there were false gospels, there are also those in our day. So what are some of the false gospels of our day? Well, here's one. And it sounds really good, but it's not true. God loves you, and you're fine just as you are. This is one of the most dangerous messages of our day because it's so close to the truth, yet so far. It's true that God loves us. As John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. So it is true that God loves us. But it's not true that we're fine just the way we are. Kids, I want your attention for a second. Society will tell you that you're fine just the way you are. You're perfect just the way you are. But as your pastor, and I want you to know that I love you, you're not perfect just the way you are. You're not fine just the way you are. That doesn't mean that we don't love you and your parents don't love you. But if you were fine just the way you are, if you were perfect just the way you are, you'd listen and obey your parents every time. You wouldn't fight with your siblings. You wouldn't lie and steal. We all know this deep down, even as adults, we often wonder why we do the things that deep down we don't want to do. I'm not fine the way I am. You just need to ask my wife. You see, the world will tell you that the problem isn't you, but everything around you. It's because of your environment, why you do the things you do. But the Bible tells us there's there's something deeply wrong with us. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned against God and his ways and have become sinners. 
Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. All. That means every human being across the ages have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have transgressed God's laws and we have fallen short of His standards. We have missed the mark. In Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And they are asking, what makes a person unclean? Unclean. Because the Pharisees thought that what made a person unclean is what they ate and whether or not they washed their hands and those kinds of things. And this is how Jesus responds to that question. For from within, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus' view of humanity is different than our society's view of humanity. And so the gospel isn't God loves you and you're fine just the way you are. The gospel has more to do with the idea that God loves you so much that he's provided a way for you to be transformed. And we're going to get there. Secondly, the gospel isn't Jesus died for you so that you could be healthy and wealthy. This is what we call the prosperity gospel. It is the greatest evil, I think, being preached in thousands of churches today across North America and the rest of the world. Men and women taking this Bible and twisting it and praying on the poor and the sick. That if they only give more money, then God will heal them and will prosper them. And I'm not going to spend time debunking this from the scriptures, but this isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that's all you know about Christianity, I am sorry. Because that is not the good news of Jesus Christ. These men and women who pray on the vulnerable will one day stand before God and have to answer to him. So the gospel is not God loves you and you're fine just the way you are. Nor is it that Jesus died for you so that you could become healthy and wealthy. So what is it? What is the gospel of Christ? What's the good news of Christianity? Well, sometimes the way to appreciate good news is you have to first hear bad news. Sometimes you can't come to terms with the good news until you first come to terms with the bad news. The good news of Jesus can only be treasured when you first come to grips with the bad news. You see, Christianity has, in one sense, the most horrifying news of the world. It has the most horrible news for the world, but also the greatest, most glorious news for the world at the same time. And when you come to grips with the horrifying news, the glorious good news of the gospel becomes all the more sweet. So what is the bad, horrifying news? Well, the Bible tells us that God created the world and humanity good. In the beginning, he saw it was very good. 
He made humanity for the purpose of having relationship with him. That we would enjoy him and the creation he gave us to have dominion over and to care for. God made us to have sweet fellowship and communion with him. He made us in his image and likeness, which means every human being, no matter what they believe, no matter what they do, has intrinsic worth and dignity. God made us to know him. But something happened. Something horrible took place. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God and they disobeyed the one command God had given them. And God had warned them, as a father warns his children, that if they did so, they would surely die. Not just die physically, but also spiritually. And and if you, you have a hard time imagining this, you need to wrestle with the reality, why do we die as human beings? It seems to be the most natural thing in human life. Everyone dies, and yet none of us truly are ever at peace with it. Because it's not natural. It's the result of human rebellion and sin. All of creation and all of humanity would experience death and decay because Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator. Why? Because the Bible tells us that sin brings death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Creation fell. It became corrupt. Humanity fell. We became corrupt. We all have become like our first parents, Adam and Eve. We have sinned against God and his ways. We have rebelled against him. And because of this, the Bible says we are sinners. And I know that's not popular in today's society. But this is the biblical explanation for all that's wrong in the world. Human suffering, disease, natural disasters, wars, hatred between different ethnicities, conflict between the sexes, broken families, sexual brokenness, abuse of power and authority, corruption in our judicial system. These are all a result of human sin. You know, we we know that there's something wrong with this world experientially. You just have to turn on the news. But the majority of humanity is the majority of humanity is willing to admit that our world is broken. But the majority aren't willing to admit the reason for why the world is broken. The Bible claims that the reason for the brokenness in our world is because of human sin and rebellion against God. We have broken his commands and turned from his ways. Listen, God, God's commands were never meant to oppress. His commands were for our protection and for human flourishing. His commands were meant to bring joy. They were to serve as boundaries to keep us from self-harm and harming one another. Like a good father and mother who places boundaries around their five-year-old child to protect him and to make sure their child has a joy-filled childhood. That's what God did with humanity. See, brokenness and suffering in our world isn't the main problem. 
brokenness is merely the result of the main problem. The main problem is human sin. But we refuse to admit this about ourselves. Malcolm Muggeridge said it best when he said, The depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. There is nothing more clear and evident than the sinfulness of humanity, and yet we, as humanity, will resist that fact till the cows go home. We'll admit we're broken, but we won't admit that we're sinners. We'll acknowledge there's something wrong with the world, but I'm not part of the problem with what's wrong in the world. And then what do we do? We vilify others to convince ourselves that we're the solution and they're the problem. All you have to do is go on social media and see how people speak to one another from opposing views. But we also see this most clearly today in politics. Right? If you're a liberal, the conservatives are the problem for all that's wrong in the world. And if you're a conservative, the liberals are, are the problem for all that's wrong in the world. Or a Democrat or a Republican. We join our tribes and then we vilify every other group without looking in the mirror and realizing that I'm a part of the problem. The Times once wrote an article called, What's Wrong with the World? And G.K. Chesterton, who was an atheist and became a follower of Jesus, wrote to the editor of the article, and this is what he said. Dear sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton understood that the problem wasn't out there. The problem was in his own heart. He was a sinful human being. Have you ever thought about the fact that the desires, the desires that are necessary for people to do evil things reside in all of us? What are the desires that are necessary to commit murder or adultery? Things that we often think are just absolutely horrible. What are, what are the desires that are necessary? What are the things that we need to feel in order for us to do those kinds of things? Bitterness. You ever felt bitter? Lust? Pride? Jealousy? Anger? Desire for power? You see, the Bible makes clear that even though you and I, we might not always, we might not have murdered someone, we have the desires that are necessary for that to take place. And Jesus in the New Testament speaks to the fact that it's not just our actions that are evil, but it's also the desires. That's why he can say that if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Or if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. He's not just concerned about our actions, but also our desires. And the desires that are necessary to commit horrible evils live in each of us. Alexander Zolhens, I can't ever say his name right, Zolhen, I'm not going to say his name. Uh, He's the Russian author who lived and and suffered under the hands of the Soviet Union. 
in the gulag, in their prison camps, he stated this, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It doesn't cut through that group versus this group. It cuts through every single one of our hearts. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 3 when describing all of humanity. He says this in verses 9 to 18. For we have already charged that all, all of humanity are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is who we are, according to the Bible. We are sinners who have rebelled against God and have turned from his commands, the commands that were meant to bring life. And we have wronged one another and ourselves. And because of this, the Bible declares that we're guilty. We're guilty. We're guilty and condemned before God, deserving of his righteous judgment. It's not just that we feel guilty. It's that we are guilty. And the Bible tells us that the righteous judgment of God is one day going to be revealed against all who have sinned and rebelled against him, you and I. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, Paul writes, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I know that that is such an offensive truth today. The idea of God punishing humans for sin is very unpopular. But whether it's offensive or unpopular doesn't mean that it's untrue. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. But I want, I want to say this to you. You should never reject something merely because it offends you merely because you don't like the idea because if it is true you have to reconcile with it there are several things that we need to understand about God's judgment against sin the first is this it's always judicial God acts as the righteous judge of all the universe and he judges according to his righteousness and justice. He doesn't lose his cool and fly off the handle like the so-called gods of Greek mythology. He is righteous, and he judges according to his righteousness. He judges as the righteous judge that he is. Every society has always believed in retributive justice. Humanity has always held to the conviction that certain forms of conduct deserve and should be punished. This is why every society has a justice system. The justice system's purpose is to punish those who break the law and cause harm to other citizens. It is for the goal to protect the citizens of a society. 
And no matter how corrupt a justice system can become, we as humans inherently value justice in our society. So much so that when our justice system becomes corrupt, we cry out for a just system. We expect our human judges to rightly enact justice against those who have broken the law and have wronged other humans. And depending on the severity of the crime, there is greater punishment or lesser punishment. Now imagine living in a society where there was no justice system. Where there was no punishment for any wrongdoing. Is that a society that you would want to live in? You probably remember the story of Larry Nasser. I believe it was two years ago. The doctor who was accused of assaulting over 250 young female athletes. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to prison 175 years. Now I want you to imagine if the judge of Larry Nasser's case said to all his victims, I know he's done evil against you all, but I'm a loving judge and so I'm going to let him go. Every single one of us would know that what the judge did was not just an unwise decision, but it was an evil decision. In light of all those victims, it would be evil if the judge simply dismissed his case and allowed him to go free. We would say that judge is immorally bankrupt and corrupt. Yet for some reason... We as humans expect God to do that with us. God is love. He won't judge us. We give society the right to execute justice and retribution, but if God does it, he's a moral monster. Friends, a God who doesn't justly punish sin is a moral monster. He is an immoral God if he doesn't justly punish punish sin, just as a human judge who doesn't punish crime is an immoral judge. The God of the Bible punishes sin judicially. Secondly, God's judgment always fits the crime. Many people will object to God's judgment because they feel that it's too severe. How could God punish people for all of eternity? And it's a valid Objection. The doctrine of eternal punishment is a very hard pill to swallow. It's emotionally difficult to accept. Even as a pastor who believes the Bible is the word of God, I struggle emotionally with God's eternal punishment towards sinners. I do. But I believe it to be true. Because I truly believe this book to be the word of God. And I also know that in my sinfulness, there are things about God that I won't naturally like, but must be conformed to. So why does our sin against God deserve such a severe punishment? Well, let me give you three ideas that maybe will help you wrestle with this truth. The first is simply this. We just don't understand how evil our own sin is. We don't get it. 
We are blind to how sinful we are. If you're married, you know this. It is so easy to see the flaws in your spouse while being completely blind to your own. We do not understand the depravity of our own sin, the evilness of our own sin, the vileness of our own sin, and because of that, it is hard for us to understand why God would punish sin in such a way. But also, we know from human experience that the punishment fits the crime. In other words, if if I were to break into your house, steal many of your things, let's say I stole your 50-inch flat screen TV, there would be a severe punishment for such a crime. But if I were to break into your house and murder you and your children, the punishment would be far more severe. Why? Because we know that a human life is of more worth than mere possessions. You see, the worth of a human dictates the severity of a crime. And when we sin against God, we're sinning against the supreme worth of the universe. We're sinning against an infinite being, and therefore an infinite punishment fits the crime. Or another way to put it, the innocence and purity of a person also determines the severity of a crime. We know as humans intrinsically there's something far more evil about a man harming a one-year-old compared to him harming another man. Both are evil. Both are wicked. But to harm a little child is in many ways the most vile offense a human being can do to another human. Why? Because a child, we know this, has an innocence and a purity to them that we know must be protected and treasured. There's something sacred about a little child that ought to be protected and never taken advantage of. And when we sin against God, we're sinning against the purest and most innocent of all beings. And therefore the punishment is more severe. This is the bad news of Christianity. This is the horrifying news of Christianity that every single human being, including myself, has sinned and rebelled against a good and righteous God. We have defied his commands. We have sought to live our own ways. And because of this, we are guilty and under the judgment of God. And there will come a day where we will answer for all the wrong we have done. And no attempts on your part will change this predicament. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change the fact that you are guilty before God. You're striving to be a better person. Your own good works, your resolve to be good, your your prayers, your going to church, your attempting to love people more will never remove the guilt that you have. Your own good works and deeds will no more protect you from the judgment of God than a water noodle will protect you from a 20-foot tsunami. Trying to clear your guilt before God is like trying to remove yourself from quicksand. It's impossible in your own effort. This is the terrifying news of Christianity. This is the hardest truth to accept about yourself, that you are a sinner 
that I am a sinner and we deserve to be punished justly by the good creator who made us. But it's only when you begin to accept this as true about you that you will treasure the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, one of the first steps in becoming a Christian involves discovering that my problems fundamentally are not that I have messed up my life or have failed to reach my own potential, but that I have sinned, not primarily against myself or even against someone else, but against God, the one who made me for relationship with him. This is the bad news. But there is good news. There is glorious news. The best news that sinners like you and me could ever hear. So what's the good news of Jesus? What's the gospel? Well, it's this. Though God is righteous and just, and we are deserving of judgment because of our sin, God is also full of mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and love towards sinners. And he has provided a means by which he will uphold his justice against sin while at the same time forgiving the sinner and restoring the sinner to a right relationship with God. And the means by which God does this is through Jesus Christ. Most specifically, his death on the cross. When you read the four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll be amazed to find that these historical biographies aren't your typical biography. There's almost no mention of Jesus' upbringing. The four Gospels cover primarily a a three-year period of Jesus' life, and the majority of the Gospels cover a week of Jesus' life. And that week is the week leading up to his crucifixion. Why? Why, if you're going to write a biography, do you really only focus on three years of his life, but more more precisely, one week of his life? Why is that the focus of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Because it's the death of Jesus that is central to the purpose for why Jesus came. See, the gospel is primarily about the mission of Jesus, and his mission was to die. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came. The Son of Man came. The Son of Man, that is Jesus, came. Why did he come? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the reason why Jesus came to the earth, that he came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In John 10, verses 10 to 11, Jesus is speaking about how he is the good shepherd and he is calling his sheep to himself and he says this, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus has come into the world to give his sheep life. Life and life abundantly. Everlasting life. How does he do it? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I came that you may have life, and the way I'm going to give you life is by dying for you and giving up my life. Matthew 1.21 
An angel appears to Joseph, Mary's soon-to-be husband, and he says this to Joseph, that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And as the story unfolds, we discover that the way Jesus will save his people from their sins is by dying for their sins in their place. The Bible uses all different kinds of metaphors to capture what Jesus did when he died on the cross. We're told that he redeemed us, redeemed us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Redeem, that word, has the idea of being bought out of slavery. Christ's death was the price that was paid for our freedom from sin and death. So he redeemed us from sin and death by taking the curse, taking the punishment, taking the judgment that we deserved. Not only that, the Bible also uses relational language. We're told that he reconciled us to God. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies of God... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So Christ dying reconciled you and I to God. That's the point that Paul's making. There's a relational dynamic. You see, through Christ's death for our sins, we are restored to right relationship with God. We can have fellowship and communion with God again. In fact, the Scriptures go so far as to say that we who were once enemies of God because of our sin have been adopted by God as His sons and daughters. Probably the most glorious truth in the Bible, that the God of the universe has adopted me as His child because Christ died for me. The Bible also uses legal language to describe what Christ did for us. Christ's death deals with our guilt before God and the punishment we deserve. He takes our sin and our guilt and bears the penalty for our sin. And because of this, we can be declared not guilty because He was declared guilty for us. This is what theologians call the great exchange. Christ took our shame, our guilt, our sin upon himself, and he gave us his righteousness, his goodness, so that you and I can stand before a holy and awesome God justified. There is other language as well to capture what Christ did, but for the sake of time, I'm going to stop there. Friends, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God is so loving, so loving that even though we should be punished for our sins, He sent His Son into the world as the sinless Lamb of God to take the punishment of our sins upon Himself to bear our condemnation so that we could be forgiven and made right with the God who made us. This is how much God loves us. That he would be willing to send his son to die for us and to restore us to right relationship with him. As John says in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To face the judgment of God for us. 
There's this incredible story that Matt Chandler tells. There was a a woman, I believe, he was trying to help, and um, she was in a very bad situation. I believe she had left her husband and um, committed adultery, and but he invited her to come to this church event, and so she she decided to come with him. and And Matt Chandler didn't know what the event was going to be like, but the pastor, the preacher, got up and began to speak. And when he got up to speak, he he took a rose. And he handed it out to the people, and he said, as I speak, I want you to pass it around to each person. And guess what he was talking on? He was talking on sexuality. And so there was Matt Chandler with this woman who was a sexually broken person. And so he's going on speaking, and Matt Chandler shares how how as he was speaking, Matt Chandler realized this man should not be preaching the Bible. He doesn't know a thing about the Word of God. But they sat there and listened. And at the end of the service, at the end of the sermon, the preacher said, where's the rose? Where's the rose? And someone came up and handed it to him. It had been passed between person to person. And so the rose, you you can imagine, didn't look like it did when he first had it. The leaves were broken and the petals were falling off and it didn't look like the beautiful rose it once was. And the preacher stood up And looked at everyone in the crowd and said, who would want this rose? Who would want this rose? What was his point? People who are sexually broken, this is what they look like. Who would want this rose? And Matt Chandler was sitting there beside this sexually broken person. And by the way, we are all sexually broken people. But Matt Chandler was sitting beside this woman. And I remember him sharing how he was so angry he wanted to stand up and look the preacher in the face and say, Jesus wants the rose. That's the whole point of the gospel. He came to take the unwanted rose and to transform that rose into beauty. That's what Jesus did in the gospel. He did not come for the righteous. He did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He came for the broken. He came for the sinner. He came to rescue the brokenhearted, and to bind them up and to make them into a new creation. That's why he came. Jesus wants the defiled rose. You see, the gospel is ultimately about a beautiful, glorious king. And his kingdom is like no other. And his glory and radiance is like no other. His crown is like no other. His garments are like no other. He shines like the sun. And he decided to go for a walk one day and mingle with the peasants. And while he was there, he saw on the side of the street a prostitute beaten up, taken advantage of. Her clothes were all Teared. She was filthy. She was the shame of the town, yet secretly there were many who were using her. And this king came and he had mercy on her. And he picked her up, he took her into her home, and he undressed her. He took her clothes off, not to use her. He then put her in the water, the bath. And he washed her. 
clean the, the scars, clean the cuts, clean the dirt. And he didn't realize that she didn't have any other clothes. So what he did was he took off his kingly robe and he dressed her in it and he took her ripped up robes and he put it on him. But she was so weak and frail, so broken, that he decided to pick her up and put her on his back. And he decided to carry her all the way back to his palace, a palace like no other. And you know in ancient times, the king's palace was always uphill. And he carried her uphill. He took her into his palace so that she could heal. But not only that, he married her. This prostitute became his bride. And she became a queen. And now she shares in the glory of the king. She reigns in the radiance of the king. That's the gospel. That the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, came down and took us broken prostitutes, so to speak. And he dressed us in his glorious robes. He sat us with him on his throne. He said, you will reign with me. And there's one thing missing in that story. The king did it primarily by dying for the prostitute. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of Christianity. That Jesus has come for the rose. He's come for the prostitute to bind them up and to bring healing and forgiveness of sins and to restore them to their once former glory. So how do we respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? The Bible tells us that we must repent and believe upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We must embrace the king who is willing to embrace us. Luke 5.32 says, Jesus says this, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. What is repentance? It's recognizing that you've sinned against God and renouncing it. It's to turn from sin and to turn toward God, the giver of life. In other words, it's to admit that you're the broken rose that needs to be made whole. It's to admit that, that you're the prostitute that needs to be rescued by the king. But you also need to believe upon the king. You need to believe upon Jesus Christ. What does it mean to believe? Well, first, you have to believe that it's true. That Jesus actually came into this world and died for our sins and was raised according to the scriptures. But it more fundamentally means that you fully rely and depend on Jesus for your salvation. Just like the prostitute. There was nothing she had to offer him. He gave her everything and all she did was simply receive and embrace it. You must turn from any kind of real hope in yourself and your own achievements and place all your hope and confidence in Jesus. This is the proper response to the good news of Jesus Christ. To come before him and repent of your sins and embrace him as the Savior, 
the sin forgiver, the righteousness giver, the Lord of your life, the King. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the message of true Christianity. And if a church is going to honor Christ, it must uphold and proclaim his gospel to the end of the age. For it's by this gospel that sinners find forgiveness and are made into princes and queens. John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, who was a slave trader in the African slave trade. He killed hundreds of African slaves. He found the forgiveness of Jesus. And near the end of his life, he said this, I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, our salvation, our radiant King who rescues us when we were unwanted. We thank you that in him we have forgiveness, but more than that, we have been adopted as your children and are now heirs of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that they would cry out to you, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, I need you. I pray, Lord, that you would save for your glory and for your namesake. In his name we pray, amen.